Blog Talk Radio.
some music. Hello. Okay. Dead space. Dead space. All righty. Can you hear me now? Yeah, bye there. There you go. Okay. Okay, I think we finally got the kinks out of the technology, and Don is on live and can hear us finally. And he can hear, and uh, we can hear him. Good hey, morning. <laughs> technology is a wonderful thing, but it doesn't always work right, does it? That's true. I was on Facebook uh, early, early this morning, and somebody had put a uh, posted an article that talked about swarm farming, where you take a whole bunch of robot, robots, put them out in the field, and let the robots do all the work. And I put a comment on it that sometimes in the rush to technology, we cut our own throat. Yeah. Yeah, because what are the... Uh the lower income people going to do if if they can't work their fields. You know, and, and it go it's a trickle down method. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. You know, don't get the people uh something places to work. The economy's never gonna never gonna work right. Well not only that, but there's a sense of pride and a sense of accomplishment when we as humans do manual labor. And mm-hmm. it's not always enough to just say, well, we don't want to get rid of the technology altogether. I think that's just as bad as rushing forward without thinking. But I I really do believe that what we need as a society to do is pick and choose where the technology will serve us best. Swarm farming on another planet has great value because it's not cost-effective to send that many people up there yet. Well, that makes sense. On Earth, puts more people out of work and thus increases the government's requirement to pay out when it loses taxpayers, which just seems like a real oxymoron to me. (laughs) (laughs) Oxymoron is a good word. (laughs) It's a good word for that. It does does take a certain uh, moron mentality in order to think that this is that this is going to work in the long term. Yeah. And and this is something that has troubled me, which prompted my research and and my efforts in the homesteading space process. 
Ah, so now we come back around. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> the the headlong rush to technology has us in all of our science programs working hard to create technology that can do stuff. And while that's fine and well and good, I think we're losing sight of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. The idea of pushing outwards with new frontiers is part of who and what we are. We are explorers. We are we are physical creatures. And that means that we need to be doing the exploring. It's all right. fine and well and good for um, government science projects to reach out and develop things like GPS, which helps us out, and develop things like uh, communication satellites, which helps us out. But those don't necessarily take jobs away from the working man who supports our governments and pays the bills for our governments. But when it comes to space, I think we need to get back in the frontier business. Mm -hmm. Right now, NASA's goals are all about science. They're all about learning about this, that, or the other without a push to put people out there and let them build the frontier. Everybody's so worried about losing lives. Well, you know, the reality is, (laughs) if we look back, any time we have pushed forward on a frontier, we've lost a lot of people. Right, a lot of people. You know, and you can you can look back every time the Roman the Roman civilization pushed outward to the frontier and ended up fighting battles to achieve that frontier. You go farther back in time when people moved out into uncharted territory, they lost lives due to unforeseen climate, unforeseen conditions, bugs, diseases. We have to recapture our sense of exploration and did you, willing go ahead did you hear this week that they said that they, the population is now past 7 billion in the yep. world I saw that's, that that's more than I mean it's you know obviously I mean, we don't know whether or not there's been more earlier because population wasn't really counted or wasn't counted accurately but seven right. billion. That's a that's it's a huge number. But my own personal opinion is that the that the Earth can support twice or even three times that amount. I, I don't think that with responsible farming and uh maybe rethinking some of the technology that we have in place, that we might be able to support jobs that will allow people to farm land in a responsible manner recovering the land, taking care of the land, and taking care of the food. I think we can feed the billions, but I think we're paying a hefty price with our headlong rush to technology, which reduces jobs, which puts people on the unemployment line who can't afford to pay for food, which means prices shift, which means farmers have to cut back because nobody's buying their products. There's a whole cycle here that I think we missed. A, a new frontier would shift that in the opposite direction, I think. It would take a few years. But once the frontier is established, then we're going to have demand for new things. We're going to have a shift in public perception that may, no guarantees, 
that could assist in the transition to make it a little bit easier for us to look at farming techniques that make better sense instead of these huge monolithic farms based on a communistic approach of centralized control, which doesn't work. It just flat doesn't work. We have food shortages in certain parts of this country, and we have overabundance and waste in other parts, and the centralized system cannot seem to get it together. And this is the point where we come and look at the idea of the frontier and the topic for, for our discussion today, zero, mission zero. Okay. When it, com- when it comes to space, all of our missions, the, the, the several Apollo missions and many of the, uh, the science missions and the robotic missions that have gone out are all about science. And while expanding our frontiers of knowledge is a wonderful thing, we have more pressing needs to establish if we're going to, A, continue to push that frontier of science farther out, and second, be able to push the frontier of human exploration out. We can't be trying to go to Mars without having a base in space somewhere that can provide food, fuel, raw materials, and even eventually industrial materials to build the ships that are going to have to go to Mars. The the financial expenses with a 20-year buildup for a mission to Mars is humongous. It will not be supported by taxpayers. They've shown that. And I think that's something that we have to simply hunker down and recognize. That we've got to rethink the way we're going to approach the frontier. And that's where Mission Zero comes into play. To illustrate my point, when we have watched uh, shows like Contagion and Outbreak, where we have this um, infectious event, and people are getting sick and so forth, we see how they're trying to track down patient zero, as they call it, the very first starting point of the outbreak. Now, there's important reasons for that with regard to medicine, because without patient zero, it's there are questions left in the development of the organism that they're dealing with. So, too, the analogy applies in opening the frontier of space just as it did in opening the frontier of the American colonies and later on the American West. If you do not have that first group of people to set out and find out what's there to start with physically and how to survive, then every follow-on mission will be doomed to make and repeating many mistakes that We shouldn't have to. The very first thing that comes to my mind on a mission zero is survival. Uh When the pioneers began moving west in the land rush of the mid-1800s and before that when they commissioned Lewis and Clark, these men had to live off the land. They couldn't carry a couple of wagon loads of supplies and materials 
can expect to be able to carry those supplies and materials all the way through on their expected journey. So, too, when we go to space, we cannot expect to carry everything, or even worse, in the same same venue as Lewis and Clark, we cannot expect to be able to ship supplies out. We're not going to know where these people are on in Lewis and Clark scenario, and when it comes to the moon, it's going to be increasingly more difficult and more expensive to launch from the, from the surface of the Earth supplies, and then take a minimum of three days to get those supplies to the to the lunar surface. So we have a whole host of issues there that I just don't believe that um, people are really thinking about. And then there's another issue. If you're going to send people to a frontier, it seems counterproductive to send them with a habitat that cannot be expanded easily. In other words, with available resources on hand. The moon and Mars both are, for all intents and purposes, barren for humanity. While they are probably rich in mineral resources, the moon has supposedly got a whole bunch of water, um, and so too does so too are we finding that Mars has probably got water as well. Um, the issues that we face in being able to live there long enough to harvest this stuff are huge in comparison to what we had to face here to to extract those resources. Hmm. We don't have trees. We don't have uh, availability for air to provide for crops. Uh, the gravity is very different, so we also don't, don't have answers on how is that gravity and changed air pressure going to affect those crops. And so the bottom line comes back to this principle of mission zero. We need to be able to answer those questions. And the reality is we cannot reproduce low or zero gravity on Earth for any length of time, at least not long enough to grow a few plants. We also cannot assess the potential in a reduced atmosphere and a reduced gravity on plants and animals on Earth. Just the, the, the cost to even attempt it would be horrendous. So this is where I'm coming from the premise of establishing a mission zero. Okay. That sounds really, uh, you know, it's a heavy subject to get into. I, th- I think it is. And it is something that I'm not sure if the people like Robert Zubrin and, and Buzz Aldrin and the NASA leadership have really sat down and considered working with the environments that are available. Now, I, I, I've looked at, you know, uh, Professor Marshall Savage's Millennium Project, and, and I've read several of the others, and I've watched with great interest the progress of the um, many space groups that are out there. But I'm struck by the lack of effort in defining a way to live there resource light. Hmm. If we look at the Mars project that Zubrin's Mars Society has set up, and I think 
I know they've got one. I thought I saw a reference that they might have two, but I think it may just be one. But in this habitat, they they've set up a habitat out in in the boonies somewhere away from away from people and so forth, and they do mission simulations. Now on the surface, that's awesome that they're doing that, and I think it's an, an integral part of preparing for a mission on another planet or another celestial body. But here's the rub. By the time we get to the point that that mission scenario will be achieved, you're looking at the 20-year development cycle for a Mars mission. You're looking at uh, uh, the current estimate, last estimate I saw was three years to get to Mars, uh, three years to get to Mars, and then you've got uh, a couple of weeks time lapse in the communications to know whether they even got there or not, and then you've got the huge expense over that 23 to 25 year period, um, we're missing something here. The, the, the public, in 20 years, we could we could self-destruct as a society. I doubt that we will. But the things that we depend on now for the space program aren't going to be there in 20 years. The technology is going to be so different. The manner in which we produce food is likely going to be very different. The manner in which we do just about everything, be it cars, planes, trains, and automobiles, is going to be so different that the outlook at that point in time, we're going to look back and say, why did we spend all this money? I think we need to shift our focus more towards a direction that says, okay, we're going to live. We're going to live first. And that's where Mission Zero comes in. One of the things that we can do well is that we have labor, and labor is relatively cheap. If we can provide sufficient food, air, and water in an environment that they can work in, then then people can do whatever they need to do. So, yeah, our first priority is food, air, and water. NASA and most of the other programs I've seen have seemed to have taken the perspective, well, if you're going to provide food and air and water, that assumes you're going to drop a tin can. I don't think that assumption applies. When the pilgrims came across the Atlantic Ocean, they didn't say we're going to need a cabin, so let's put a cabin on the ship. (laughs) I really don't think they did that. I think that what they said was, let's take the tools and the supplies based on our Pathfinder's knowledge of what they tell us we need. And we will take with us the minimum materials to accomplish our task. Hmm. Well, I think the only one that got that got a spot a space in the ship was a captain. I'm sorry, I missed that. Say it again. I said the only one. I said the only one that got um, that got a position in or a space in the ship was the captain. True. Everybody else had to had to sleep with with the supplies. And the animals. And the animals. <laughs> and the animals. Some of the people were animals, you know. 
Yeah, and here we go. Let's go back to the very first frontier excursion that we have in our history. Noah and the Ark. <laughs> wow. How about well, that's, that? That's really going back a ways. That's going back a ways. That was one room with, with, with uh, you know, cornered off areas for each animal. But exactly. One huge place, and then everybody was living in one spot. You know, along with the animals. Exactly. It was cramped. It was crowded. It was uncomfortable. It was livable, but only for a short period of time. Right. You know, exactly. They only carried what they needed for the time they understood they would be on their journey. And I think while NASA does this to a degree, every mission is planned down almost to the millisecond in what they need in food, air, and water, and they change the food to fit the needs of the mission, and they change the nature of the atmosphere has changed a bit, and the craft is, is by all intents, it's it basically a coffee can for all intents and purposes. But I, think they, I don't think they go far enough, and that's where I think we're missing the boat, literally. Mm-hmm. If we compare all of these frontier efforts, we start with NOAA. We look. Uh, we can come forward to a whole host of other things: the early Vikings, the the Phoenicians, um, all of these people who were explorers as they sailed the, the seas of the earth into uncharted areas, and discovering that there were basic assumptions they could make about their soon to be achieved environment. We already know a great deal about the moon. And I'm going to start focusing my conversation on the lunar surface. We know that there's a lot of things there that we know how to deal with. We know that if you drop a tin can on the surface of the moon, you're going to have to bury it with dirt. <laughs> and here's the, here's the reality of that. In order to be able to bury that in any appreciable amount of time, you're going to have to have heavy equipment. That's just a law of physics. There is no way around that. To move the tons of dirt, you're going to have to move, and to get it high enough to cover up any habitat unit, you're going to have to have heavy equipment. Now, it's been proposed that they send a swarm of smaller robots. Well, yeah, okay, until those robots start deteriorating because of the caustic and corrosive lunar dust. There's nobody there to repair those robots. So the cost starts. Oops. Um, it sounds like we lost him. Hang on.
Are you there? There. Are you there? You know, the wonderful... I'm here. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Got you back. Okay. The wonderful beauty of technology is that it works when it works, but when it fails, it fails disastrously. (laughs) And it it fails consistently. (laughs) It fails consistently. I'm on the road, and I was passing through... The only word I can come up with is is a dead zone in the in the Phoenix area, and I wasn't. I'm paying attention to the road, but I hadn't noticed I was coming up, and probably could have. Well, I think we lost him again. Don. Wow. Okay. Yeah, dropped it again. That's <laughs> gonna throw us out the game. So, um, yeah, that's what happens when, when you know cell phones. I mean, they're wonderful things, but the, the issue is that we get to so used to our gadgets working right, then we rely on them uh, a little too much sometimes, and this is what happens when we do. <laughs> we wind up. Uh, Having things go wanky and we can't, uh, we, we drop calls and things like that. We can't communicate. See, so we're living in a world of communication, yet we can't communicate consistently because technology just doesn't allow that. So, hopefully he notices and tries again here. There he is. <laughs> As I was saying, when it treat failed, treat. it Failed miserably. <laughs> Three times a charm, I hope. Ah. <laughs> uh. Uh, well, you know, I wonder if they had this kind of they had this kind of problem on Star Trek too. You know. <laughs> well, sure. There were there were times when the technology just stops, and you have to work with what you what you've got at the moment. And Actually, you know, we, we a, remember. Go ahead. This brings up an interesting subject. As I was just saying while you were gone, that uh, we get so used to our technology and rely on it too heavily. Exactly. And so we're not quite sure what to do sometimes when it's not working. There you go. So how would we handle that um, in regards to homesteading space? Well, let's take an example that that's real-world example of when things failed very badly, Apollo 13. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Many of us are familiar with it, uh, either from having watched it, glued to our TV screens for those several days while they struggled and, and, and survived and, and rose to the occasion, but also how the technology did indeed fail. Yeah, uh, exactly. Miserably, and whatever the cause was, I'm sure they figured it out and and prevented it from happening again. But here's the thing: there, there is no foolproof way to to uh, keep something from not breaking. No, there isn't. And we also had there are lessons to be learned in space, and there are lessons to be learned for the space frontier. And I'll say this flat out and bluntly: so long as government agencies are so dependent on the assumption that they must protect life and limb 
over all other concerns, they will never be able to learn the lesson of putting people into space for long-term frontier work. Not going to happen. We have to have the space to make mistakes. We have to have the necessary times when lives are lost. There are lessons that are going to be missed. Now, do I advocate just being irresponsible about it and not taking any effort to save lives? No, absolutely not. But there is there is a line that our space agencies have crossed that now goes too far and prevents reasonable progress. As an example, we haven't had a, a new man-rated spacecraft in years. The closest thing we've got right now is SpaceX Dragon, as far as I understand. And it's going to be another year or more before that craft can be man-rated. And yet, manufacturers uh, such as Boeing and Airbus are creating aircraft and designing aircraft to specifications every year. And they come out with new models every year and they sell new planes. And the certification process for these um, is, is far far less than it is for the space program. And I can understand that from the government's point of view and that they don't want to be responsible for a potential loss of life because they didn't legislate enough care. And while I agree that accountability doesn't go far enough in Washington, there is such a thing as too much accountability pressure. And I think that's what we've done to the space companies out there, be they government-funded or be they private. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's major mistake. We'll, we'll put some numbers here. Major mistake number one is not pushing for human uh, progress in space. Major mm-hmm. mistake number two is making it so expensive by putting the bar of safety so high that it is almost unreachable, that it incurs such extreme rate increases in expenses that it cannot be made profitable at any cost, at any value. It cannot be done right now the way that legislation is, the way the safety requirements are. And while, you know, I mean, yeah, the Pilgrims, when they built ships in the days of the Pilgrims or when Noah built his ship, I am sure that what they were interested in was more just, okay, will the dang thing float, will it hold water, and will it support us while we're on the water and keep us dry? Okay, that's good enough. And I'm sure that, that the great shipbuilders of, of the 1600s and on up had the same inkling. Okay, does it float, da-da-da, da-da-da, yeah, we're good. Okay, out it goes. Problem is, the federal regulations and safety guidelines have gone so far that we can't deliver a spaceship that works anymore. Hmm. And that goes for any habitat that somebody's going to drop on the surface of the moon or Mars. It's got to be man-rated by our current standards now, and that's going to quadruple or sextuple the cost associated with any project to get there. So let's go back to Mission Zero, and, and how does Mission Zero change this? 
Well, first of all, it puts human survivability beyond the life of the habitat first. Let's talk about that phrase, beyond the life of the habitat. Any constructed habitat that is shipped up from Earth is going to have a lifetime measured in perhaps months, maybe years, but most likely it's going to have a month lifetime. Huh. And and that's simply because of just the one physical thing that is hard to deal with in space, and that's the expansion and contraction of the skin and envelope of the habitat in the space environment. It's going to take such an amount of time to get that thing buried to hold a constant temperature and pressure that they're going to run really serious risks. Are they surmountable? Sure. But at what cost? And how much time and money will be spent in surmounting those costs rather than redirecting those efforts into identifying an alternative habitat that can be established after they land. Something that can either be constructed or, for lack of a better choice of words, hollowed out and sealed up. We have mining technology that is hundreds of years old. And I was researching some of it recently, and some of the tools that the men in the tunnels actually used haven't changed in 100 years, appreciably. Hmm. I mean, there's been minor adjustments. But these tools have not changed in, in hundreds, and in some cases even, even 1,000 years. We are still using pickaxes and shovels in different areas of the mining process. It's still a necessary part of that process. Now, that brings to mind that we know two important things about the lunar surface. Because there's no running water and because there's no wind, there's no weathering of the particles that occur from impacts on the surface of the moon. Now, this doesn't seem to be a really important detail until you look at the structure and the shape of those particles. They're very jagged. And one of the things that science, wonderful technology, has shown us is that when you have jagged particles that share similar shapes, they compact very tightly with little or no airspace in between them. Now, this is a good thing because as the ground and the lunar surface has been impacted over the eons, and there's been no water or air to cut channels or to create cracks and fissures beyond the impact areas. This ground is compacted and impacted more tightly than if you'd taken a, a, a road crew out and packed it down with heavy equipment. That has a benefit to us, that if we can care reasonably carefully dig into this compacted soil, it is very likely to be airtight, which means we can seal it up. And if we can seal it up, we can create a habitat with Earth technology. We don't need high-tech to do this. 
And herein lies the difference. We can do a Noah. We can do a pilgrim trip. We can do a homestead trip out west to the moon. <laughs> we know how to mine. We really yeah. do. We, we, as humans, we know how to dig in the earth like a born and bred mute mole. <laughs> All right? We can do that. We can do that well. Now, in the few times that I've seen in articles that have talked about drilling into the surface of the, the moon, they've talked about one of two ways. They talked about hauling up a multi-billion-dollar tunnel boring machine, which weighs hundreds of tons, and which, by the way, usually digs about 15 feet, and then they have to stop it for eight hours to change out the bits, which could be interesting. Huh. Resupplying that thing. The second option is is to use equipment that would hollow out ditches on the surface of the moon. Set the habitat down in the ditch, and now you don't have to bury as much soil. But wait a minute. What kind of equipment are you going to use to hollow out the soil and dig the ditch? Both of these efforts require massive systems of heavy equipment. I don't care if you've got little bitty radio-controlled robots out there with plastic shovels. It is going to take decades to move enough soil to cover a decent-sized habitat. And then you're going to have these things breaking down on the order of, of one or two a week because of the dust it's going to create. It just doesn't make fiscal sense. But what if we look at it from a different perspective? If we go back to this mission zero idea and we look at the resources that are already available and we know that we can dig a mine, we know that simpler techniques such as drilling and blasting can be used to drill into the side of a crater, which means the biggest part of digging a big hole is already done. We go down into the hole, and we start digging a cave. Now, mind you, I'm not talking a big cave to put 100 people in. Mm -hmm. I'm talking a cave big enough to provide room for, say, four or perhaps six people to survive put enough room in that cave that they can have enough plants growing to provide air recycling and food. We build a small biome. This is what Mission Zero ought to be about, establishing a shirt sleeve biome. Now, here's some interesting little tidbits that I've picked up over the last year of my research. In order to dig roughly 15 feet excuse me, yeah, 15-foot diameter cave, basically a half cylinder that goes 30 feet deep, could take a crew in spacesuits with the tools that they currently use for drill and blast about three days. At the end of that three days, they can seal up that habitat and transfer most of their equipment from the temporary habitat inside and be able to lengthen their ability to stay there. Plus, you now have an emergency backup that isn't being used up. So not only have we created a primary habitat that is expandable, because we can continue digging in our shirt sleeve environment now, 
we don't want to blast in there, but we can sure keep digging. And we can grow that habitat as big as we need. We can also study the geology. We can study the effects on our plants and our animals and ourselves. We can begin to establish procedures in that shirt sleeve environment inside that cave for all sorts of needs and processes that we may want to implement once we get it established. This is what Mission Zero is about. And as I said, we also at that point can power down the habitat that's sitting outside as an emergency point. So that if something goes wrong in our main habitat, we pop in our suits and go out to the emergency habitat and see if there's a way to recover. And if not, we have a point from which we can embark and come back home. It has points of redundancy, but it uses a lot more low-tech that's far less expensive to get onto the surface of the moon. Mm-hmm. This is what Mission Zero is about. It's not an arc, but it's more the lines of a Conestoga wagon to the moon. And here's another thing to consider. The mass that has to go to the moon becomes a lot lighter if you're carrying supplies rather than a transit habitat to get you to the moon and then another habitat that you've got to have fuel to land on the moon. If you're taking an inflatable, as an example, an inflatable temporary habitat, you can land that on the moon with a whole lot less fuel than trying to land a a tin can on the moon. And then trying to get it situated to get the power set up and all that kind of good stuff, your power requirements for a full-size habitat are going to be substantial, as opposed to a smaller short-term habitat that lets you get into a bigger habitat and then fill it with all your supplies. Sounds good. So the, the one downside that I know everybody is working on and is going to be a challenge no matter what we do has to do with the isolation. But one of the things that's coming out of a lot of the isolation research is has to do with the amount of space that people have to work with. The size of a habitat that any space organization is going to be able to land on the surface of the moon and try and live in is going to be very small and very cramped. Because of the size of the rockets that we have available to us today, and I'm going to pause here, I'm coming into a known dead spot. Okay. So I'm going to continue talking, but if I lose you, I will call back as soon as I'm out of the dead spot. Okay. So the size of the habitats are limited to the size of the rocks that we can use to lift them up. The tin cans and the big little habitats have finite sizes. That means that getting them to the moon is limited as, as well on the size of a habitat we can send up. Hmm. But we can greatly increase the size of the living space if we take supplies to build a bigger one when we get there and take a small temporary habitat to live in for the four or five days it'll take to build it. Makes a whole lot more fiscal and financial sense, I think. 
Hmm. We're here. So we're still here. So the key is, again, going back to the ark, going back to the Conestoga wagon, going back to the pilgrims. Each of these groups was looking at a frontier. Each of them represented a mission zero approach, taking supplies, taking gear, taking tools and materials that they would need to build a minimum to survive when they arrived. Now, Another qualifier that's going to come up is is that there are no building supplies on the surface of the moon. And for that matter, there aren't any on the surface of Mars either. So that means we're going to have to take something that can create uh, building supplies. I stumbled on something that I hadn't expected to find several months back, and that is bamboo. Asian groups and civilizations have been building with bamboo for thousands of years. It's strong. It grows fast. If you can cure it reasonably quickly, it becomes a regenerative construction material. And not only that, but it's easy to easy to work with with knives and saws. And here's the best part: we can carry um, bamboo plants, basically root balls, with us to the moon. Once we get there, we can plant them almost immediately once we have a habitat to put them down in. We only have to take enough mulch to feed them for the first little while. Once we start recycling our food waste, we're going to start creating soil or at least mulch very quickly. Within the first six to nine weeks, We'll, our, we'll have our first crop of mulch and, and, you know, recycled dirt, as it were, to plant with. And so the cycles, if we pay attention to them, can serve us really, really well. And that's what the pilgrims, that's what Noah, and that's what um, the westward pushing Conestoga wagons did. They took what they needed. So what have we got on our list now? We're not going to take a full habitat, but we're going to take an inflatable one. Well, that's a cool thing because that means it's going to fit in a much smaller compartment. It also doesn't have to be pressurized while we travel. So it can be stored outside our space habitat, or at least in a compartment that doesn't have to be pressurized. That means that's a chunk of air we can keep for after we land. If we're going to carry six months of air supply and water and foodstuffs in a food storage type arrangement, we can carry a lot more in an unprepared scenario than if we take up prepackaged meals. And that's another aspect of the Conestoga wagon to the moon or Mars that makes a big difference about mission zero as opposed to the NASA and government project means of getting to the other planet. This is a far different approach. Mission Zero is a seed. It's about planting humanity there to stay. 
Okay. We're still on. Uh, just now, I'm gonna I'm gonna go. put it back here. Uh, I just want to let everybody know that we're coming upon the last half an hour, and I want you to have a call-in number. It's seven one four two four two five one four five. That's seven one four two four two five one four five. If you have anything to share or any questions or comments, please call. Also, there's a live chat right on right on uh, the Blog Talk Radio site. You can also add that there, and I will forward it to uh, Don for his uh, answer. So, 714-242-5145. Go ahead, Don. Now, the cool thing that I think, well, what, what really gets me excited about this is that I've been working with a colleague recently, and we've been calculating uh, our mass for this project. And the construction of the ship could be done with existing systems already designed and built. And I'll give you a real brief rundown on some of the components. The very first thing that we're going to need that I think everybody agrees on is we're going to need some way to live while we transit from Earth orbit over to lunar orbit and then a way to transit out and be able to land on the surface. Well... Bigelow Aerospace up in Utah has been building habitats, inflatable habitats, for since at least 06, I believe, when they launched their first one, a uh, prototype in orbit, which, by the way, is still there. So is their second one launched, I think, in either 07 or 08. I could have my dates a little off there. Uh, And that one is also still in orbit. Both of them prototypes much smaller than a full-size manned unit. However, I believe I read recently that Bigelow has already constructed at least one and possibly two of the habitats for their scheduled private space station to be launched, and I think the last announcement I heard was in uh, 2014. These habitats were already constructed. They could be launched as soon as there's financial justification to do so. They've got two of them. Hmm. These are rated for six people, and they are supplied to survive, I I can't remember, I want to say six weeks, but I think it could be longer than that. And they could be resupplied fairly easily. Now, our mission to the moon only takes a week to get there. So we need three to five days' worth of supplies to fit inside this unit. So we can trim down our resources and use some of the overage resources for our lunar landing. So now that we've got a way to survive across the space between the Earth and the Moon, now we need a way to land on the Moon. And for this, we can look at a design by two competing companies. One is Maston Aerospace and the other is Armadillo. Both of them are working on what we call SAC. Uh, vertical takeoff and landing craft. Um, I think, let's see, Maston is called the Zoe, X-O-I-E. You can Google that. Um, and the other from Armadillo, I'm trying to think of what it's called. Uh, can't remember now. Um, but if you cross-reference on Wikipedia, 
for Lunar X Prize, I think you'll find the Armadillo ship as well. Now, both of these have are built very much like a standard rocket on Earth in the sense that they're designed to go straight up. They would be encased in a cylinder, and your fuel modules are built inside. And so they're, they're a very slender craft. If you take this craft and take a lesson from modular units on aircraft, aircraft systems like FedEx and UPS and military aircraft use modules that literally roll inside the aircraft. These modules are all built to be the same size and shape so that they're interchangeable. And you load stuff inside, you drop it into the craft, and you're done. Loading and offloading becomes a piece of cake. So let's take this lunar lander craft, and let us it's already a cylinder, so let's put three rings, one at top, one at bottom, one in the middle. And let's build pods three-foot-wide cylinders that contain all of our cargo. There's a reason they're three-foot-wide. Three-foot-wide, you take a half a cylinder, and you can dock a spacesuit into it. And our people, our team members, can ride down on this craft on the outside instead of the inside. They'd be in their spacesuits. And just, just to give you a picture of how long they'd be in those suits, the average landing time from lunar orbit down to the, to the lunar surface for the Apollo missions was around two to two and a half hours transit time going down. On average, their return time is a little bit longer depending on the orbital position. But if we do these at three-foot diameter canisters and they're pre-manufactured cylinders, we can build a whole passel of load of these things. Now, the interesting thing about this three-foot diameter is, is that it's just small enough to slide through the hatch of a Bigelow module. But not only that, by placing hooks on the back of these modules, they can be loaded and offloaded from this lunar lander very easily, both in orbit and on the surface. If we develop these in such a way that their maximum earth weight is approximately 500 pounds, that's a range of weight and mass that once they're down on the moon, one astronaut ought to be able, and of course we have no way of testing this yet, ought to be able to lift that off of the lander and lay it down on the surface and then pop back up to lunar orbit and get the next load. My current estimates are that the mass of the materials we would need to take, including the mining tools, the spacesuits, the supplies, would take uh, about eight loads of eight pods. Four of those pods would be the, the, space, uh, the spacesuit docking pods. But once down on the surface, they can pop off the ship, unload, and set up their temporary habitat almost immediately. So we've got our transit ship to get us from Earth orbit. We've now got a lander, and we've got a way to get the supplies from the habitat to the lander and down onto the surface, and we're not overloaded so that they can't handle those supplies. Now, one thing is, the beauty of these cylinders is, is that some of them can be pressurized so that we can carry plants, 
and worms and, say, chicken eggs and whatever else we may need to carry with us that has to be live cargo. And, again, if we take it from the seed point of view, we don't have to carry live chickens. We don't have to carry whole bamboo plants. We can take just the root ball. By doing this, we reduce, we greatly reduce the amount of pressurized volume that we have to carry across space and have to land on the surface of the moon. Now, I think we talked a little bit about the bamboo. Didn't we say that we would need some that are already to the point where you can use it? We do, exactly. Now, these pods, in addition to being three foot in diameter, are approximately six feet long. The actual dimensions haven't been, you know, finalized yet. But we're looking at something that's going to be approximately three feet in diameter and about six feet long. Six-foot-long bamboo staffs are exactly what we need from a handling point inside the habitat. Once they get their permanent habitat built, a six-foot-long piece is about the longest you're going to want to handle to get into an airlock in order to get it into anywhere you're going to need to use it. Exactly. So in addition, so each of these things, it's not just about getting bamboo in there in 20-foot-long sticks. First of all, we're not going to have an, a, 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 a habitat airlock that's going to have 20 feet to work with. And exactly. even if we did, uh, an astronaut isn't going to be able to handle a 20-foot-long pod on the surface of the moon and be able to get that off of whatever cargo ship it's on. So again, we're looking at the mission zero scenario here. Everything that's loaded, both in orbit and on the surface, has to be handleable by one person. And it has to be modular. And each piece has to be able to be manufactured in a mass-produced scenario that can at least guarantee that a 95 to 99 percentage of these pods can go through testing and be assured to meet the requirements of the mission. You can't do that in the way NASA manufactures things. They have to, they're just, their specs are way too tight. We don't need that tight of specs. And so mission zero scenario makes a whole lot more sense from many perspectives, not just the financial. So far, we're estimating that the Bigelow Habitat plus the supplies and uh, the, the team is going to run us around 40 tons, give or take. And that's going to include our lander craft. Now, some of the pods that they're going to be landing with are also going to be fuel for that landing craft. Mm-hmm. Because that ship has got to go down to the surface and back up at least. It's got to go down eight times, and it's got to come back up, I think seven times was what, what my colleague and I were discussing. Um, because you're not going back up the last time. Once you <laughs> the last crew down. So that's, that's, that becomes unnecessary. But we still have the problem, okay, we've got our cargo, we've got our supplies, we've got our temporary inflatable habitat in one of the pods. Um, we've got uh, our landing craft. We've got our spacesuits. We've got our team. What we don't have is our propulsion system. That's a whole different ballywick. Completely separate launch. So far, we're, our, our current estimates are we're looking at three launches, or four launches. The first launch puts the habitat up, our nice big Bigelow module. 
our second launch puts up um, two pieces, our landing craft and our pods, our cargo pods. We're still working out some details, though. That may have to be split into two launches. Um, the third launch has to put up our engine and fuel to get us to the moon and back. That unit alone is going to be almost 100 tons, maybe a little more. It takes a lot of fuel to get from Earth orbit over to the moon and into a stable orbit. Yeah, something we were talking about recently, uh, you were talking about uh, trying to get the weight right for these trips. Exactly. And one of the one of the biggest challenges is, and I'm still researching this, um, we may have to have an intermediate module. Bigelow has a module planned for their space station. It's basically an airlock. And it goes on the end of their module and allows other ships to dock, multiple ships to dock on the end of that airlock. And it's beginning to look like we're going to need one of those modules as well. We haven't figured out what the mass is on that and so forth. But basically that that interface module would sit between the Bigelow habitat and the landing craft and would afford our astronaut team ability to, first, the first launch would be the habitat, second launch would be this interface module, the third launch would be a unit that's carrying our cargo and our pressurized pods so that that can dock and then those pods can be loaded into the interior of the inflated habitat. Then that module, that ship, drops back and can be either returned to Earth or however we decide to do with that. But that module doesn't go to the moon. Once the cargo is delivered to the habitat, it's done. Then we launch up our engine unit that attaches to the Bigelow habitat. And our last launch is our team going up just themselves in spacesuits. Could be a Soyuz, could be a Dragon could be a CC dev unit, could be almost any one of a, a five or six different mod ships that are in development. Once the crew gets on board, they're going to uh, make sure that everything's secure, get everything ready, and now everything's there. The ship is fully assembled by this time. They can leave at any moment. So let's, to, to basically recap, We've got our, our Bigelow habitat. We've got our landing craft. We've got an interface module that lets us take the pods, our cargo pods, out of the habitat and get them into space so that we can put them on the landing craft. Our team has their spacesuits that they can then get onto that landing craft, pilot that ship down to the selected landing site, and come back for all eight loads. Hmm. With those two position pieces, we now add our departure engine module, our service module as it's usually called. We can get out of Earth orbit. We can get into lunar orbit. And here's something I haven't mentioned before. This scenario provides a building block to something that NASA has been trying to figure out how to do for decades. The Bigelow modules are designed to reside in orbit for long periods of time. As such, 
they are designed to have attached to them, as an example, was the interface module and engine module. They're designed to be tinker toys. Once we get this Bigelow habitat into lunar orbit, it becomes a third level of redundant safety for our team on the surface because it will stay in orbit. It becomes the foundation for our lunar space station. We will now, once the team gets onto the surface, they will have a lunar space station in orbit that's man-safe and ready to go, that they can dock with if they need to. We will have a landing and takeoff craft in position on the surface with them that they can use if they have to go up there. We will have an inflatable habitat that they'll be carrying with them that they can inflate upon landing and get into, into a shirt sleeve environment so that they can sleep and eat and at least rest from being in their spacesuits. And they'll be carrying tools, supplies, and materials that they can then use to build a larger, more spacious habitat that can then be sealed using tools that we have used on this planet for centuries. And they're going to do this with roughly 40 tons, give or take, of total mass going to the moon plus the service module. It is a true covered wagon to the moon in almost every sense of the way. Because once they get there, they're not going to use the wagon. <laughs> they're going to use right. the little short wagon that they're taking down to the surface. Well, that that is something different, though. We, we would have used the covered wagons for so many things, even if we homesteaded. Right. And it would but, have become an emergency shelter. It would have been their temporary shelter, not uh, only for the trip across, but also if an emergency arises, say the cabin burns down, well, they're going to go live in a wagon for a few days or a month or so while they rebuild the the habitat. Or it can become, it become storage. <laughs> or it becomes storage. Or get this, it becomes a waypoint for the second mission. There you go. Mission 0.2. It comes out with a second habitat, a second lander, and a second set of supplies designed for that team of four. In the second mission scenario, it's exactly the same equipment as the first team. The hope is the first team has survived long enough, and they're going to add four people to the overall team. They're going to add a second habitat and a second inflatable habitat and a second module to the lunar space station. They're also going to be adding a second service module to the lunar space station. That means we're slowly not only building a habitat, but we're also building a fuel depot. Not only are we building a fuel depot, but we now have two rocket engines that could be scavenged or salvaged for a larger ship, perhaps, to move out 
to lunar Lagrange point for building a larger station. Hmm. The whole point is is that every piece going on this mission will be designed for more than one purpose. Mission three would be very similar, but would have a slightly different mission. It would bring people, a third module, and another lander, but it would also be bringing extra fuel. This extra fuel would be used to refill the modules that we've collected up to this point and to begin preparing for expanding either the Lunar Space Station or sending one of our modules out to the, the Lagrange point. Or perhaps even there are many scenarios we could go to from there. Mission 4, 0.4, is the last of the Mission 0 scenarios. Mission 4 completes the entire cycle of establishing our beachhead. And in Mission 0.4, we bring our last four people and our last lander down. We now have a fleet of four landers. We have fuel in orbit that we can go up and grab and we have the capacity to carry materials, food, air, and water that we have recycled on the surface of the moon that we can now export. Somewhere between missions two and four, we will also have moved out of our habitat enough that we can begin doing mining for raw materials, be it rocket fuel, be it water ice, be it platinum, rare earths, but we've established a beachhead that allows us to lay the foundation for an industrialization growth phase. <laughs> um, we're on our last about 10 minutes here. Uh-huh. And I'd like to uh, bring up that I think that a lot of these things that, that you're suggesting is going to spur our economy. Can we talk about that for a minute? Because this is obviously something everybody is at the forefront of everybody's minds. The very first thing that a mission zero scenario would give not only the American public but every other nation on the planet is the idea that the individuals would have the hope of going. This is a common man mission. This is not an astronaut mission. These are for people who can farm. These are for miners who are going to run what's called a jack leg drill, which is basically a jackhammer, who are going to go up for the purpose of building these habitats for other people to follow. These are not scientists. These are not astronauts. These are frontiersmen. These are miners. Now, when you put into the public's mind the idea that there is now some place to go, you're going to spark a lot of interest in a lot of people. Now, mind you, we're only talking maybe a few million people are going to be interested in doing this, first of all. But once you spark that interest that there is now a frontier, you're going to open the floodgates for something more important 
than anything else that the government or anybody could do. And you're going to create something we haven't had in a long time. And that's hope. You plant the seed of hope, and you're going to free people up from the fear that exists now, and they're going to be coming up with all sorts of business ideas that are going to spur the economy because one thing we keep hearing today all over the news is that it's not government, it's not big business, it's not banks that creates jobs, it's small business. Right. Small business starts creating things. They're going to start and, creating jobs. And that's something that the government has, has, has forgotten. They, they haven't forgotten. They know they can't do it. <laughs> but they keep trying to give people hope by saying, well, we can fix this. And they're lying through their teeth. The government cannot fix this any more than they fixed what happened in the Depression. They didn't fix it. It was people who had hope because they had a common enemy in World Wars One and Two, and they were spurred to action. It was damn the torpedoes and full speed ahead because we have to do something. The fear was set aside by a more important mission. Hmm. They had an enemy to fight. They had a purpose. You give people a purpose, and they will fight tooth and nail to their last breath to achieve that purpose. And that's what this frontier of space offers us. It offers us hope. And with hope, we can overcome the fear. You overcome the fear and you open people's imagination to new ways that they can participate. Whether it's the guy who comes up with a way to create a closed-circuit jackhammer that guarantees we can recapture the air it uses or whether it's the guy that comes up with a way to make the drill bits last longer so we don't have to carry as many or he hollows out the drill bit but makes it stronger so it weighs less and costs less to get into space or perhaps it's the guy who comes up with a way that says hey wait a minute why do we need to do the space the spacesuit this way, what if we, again, by trimming down the, the requirements, what if it, instead of making our astronauts invulnerable, what if we said, well, you're going to get some radiation. What if we trimmed it down a little bit and made it more modular? Again, these are frontier people. These are people who have hope. They will be willing to take the risks that are they're going to incur during that three-day trip and the four days on the surface to build a habitat that will protect them from radiation and micrometeorites. They're going to be willing to accept these risks, and that is going to spur economy. That is going to spur business growth. Right okay. now, you got you got two companies working on spacesuits. you got the government, and you've got orbital outfitters. And orbital outfitters doesn't have the finances to develop it very far. But we've got probably a dozen different ideas out there to develop better spacesuits, but nobody's got the money to go forward. Right. right. You get people who have hope and can overcome the fear, they will find a way to get the money 
to develop the thing. But if there's no market for those spacesuits, well, that's just there's it. no overcoming the fear. There's um, no you, you, can, you can find people who who are going to see your vision, but again, you got to have a market for it. So there's got to be a market, if, and that market is we suddenly have a market to have, for it. and that money. market is going to be the Homestead Mission Zero scenario. Mm-hmm. The Mission Zero. The Mission Zero scenario is a four-mission plan that puts 16 people on the surface of the moon in the space of two years or less. As fast as you can launch the ships, you can put the people up there. Now, Bigelow and SpaceX are gearing up for mass production. That means they're, they're tooling for the capacity to put out a lot of ships. If we have the hope of the public and we can fund this project, and I believe we have a way to do that. I've talked about that before. I believe there is a way to fund this. And I believe the people will fund it. It won't be government funding. It'll be the people that fund this. It'll be the people that do it and it'll be the people that stand in line with SpaceX, Virgin, Bigelow, um, X-Core, and yes, maybe Boeing will come along for the ride. You know, I think that, that we as a society here in America, finally, we're, we're, we're wanting to take charge. I mean, that's what this whole you know sit-in situation is, that we're trying to let the government know that we're not happy with what, what it is, but they don't. They they exactly. laugh at the one more step they've got to take, and that is action. It says just sitting in is not going to do it because that one percent is never going to give up what they have. So That's right. the ninety nine percent need to say we want something else. We need to make it happen because you know what that one percent is sitting nice and cushy there. They got you know they got all the the perks. They they're sitting fat and happy. They're That's never right. going to give it up. And if the you politicians to make can work. squander, if the politicians can squander trillions of dollars of our money, mm-hmm. I would bet that the citizens of not only the American continent but of every other nation on the planet can come up with a, a, a one billion dollars in ready cash that we can find, if we want to, to get our first Mission Zero team up there. I would say say that's true, but the thing is that I think by doing this in chunks, like smaller projects in order to fund it, I think rather than looking at the big, you know, hairy ball there, that Uh (laughs) we need to cut it into smaller pieces in order to be palatable. And not only that, I, I agree with you 100%, and part of Part of the overall homesteading plan does just that. It breaks it into parts. But it also brings every layer of society into play. The homesteading plan that, that we've been putting together You're down on my just to warn you. Okay. Incorporates advertising. It incorporates merchandising. It incorporates products that the public can get and buy and use. It incorporates businesses participating with other businesses to generate economy. It talks. It generates hope by saying, "Here's how we can do it. 
So let's do it. And when people start, it will happen. It happened after World War II. It happened after the Depression. It happened in the late 1800s with the, the land rush. It happened when the pilgrims arrived on this on this continent. So we've exactly. done this before. We can do it again. And Mission Zero is the way to give the planet hope. Well, that's a great way to end right there. <laughs> well, yeah, we started choppy, but we got it done. And uh, thanks, Don, for for coming on this morning and talking to us again. Thank and you for again, the sofa. You're welcome. Just let, I'm going to uh, hang up here. Just let everybody know that um, if you missed any of this broadcast in, you know, uh, or if you want to cut out the beginning because we have problems uh, connecting, uh, just you can listen to the show in its entirety in about a half an hour when uh, it's the same link that you're listening to now, you can find it. So with that, um, I believe I don't have anything on for next week. So I will see you the week after. And it'll be, I believe, Tuesday after. Guys, have a great weekend and see you. This is K-Wild Radio and Patty Holstrand signing off for the day. Have a great weekend. <laughs>